Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to a special NJS Bay broadcast of Conversations on New Jersey Education, a blog talk radio show dedicated to bringing the educational issues and leaders to our listeners in the education community. Uh, this is a special meeting because it's really a, almost a meeting of the – it's hosted by NJSBA's Urban Boards Committee as a way to get the message out to our Urban Board colleagues. Uh, today's session, we're calling the broadcast the Education Reform Movement in Urban School Districts. With the elections being over in November, we are in the midst of a lame duck session, which at the moment seems a little less active than many thought it might be, though the issues that we'll be discussing tonight and we thought might be discussed in um, – the lame duck session uh, will most assuredly, I, from my point of view, be discussed sometime in the new year, uh, January, February, March, April. They're not going to go away. Uh, my name is Ray Penny. I'll be your host this evening. And joining me uh, this evening is uh, quite a few guests, so you'll hear a lot of different voices. Uh, joining me as a co-host and asking a couple of questions is Deborah Bridges, Chair of New Jersey School Boards Association's Urban Boards Committee and a member of uh, the Rawway Board of Ed. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you. How are you this evening? I'm very good. I'm very good, even though the weather's not great. Uh, and also, a uh, guest is Shavar Jeffries, who serves as a member of the City of Newark's Advisory Board. Shavar, How welcome. How are you? Very happy to be here. Great to have you, Shavar, as always. And also joining us is Stan Karp, uh, Director of Secondary <coughs> Education Reform Project with the Education Law Center. Uh, Stan, welcome. Thanks. Great to be here. Okay, uh, we hope to have a nice conversation on the issues, and if any of you are out there, we hope that you can join and ask questions of our callers. Uh, but before we get started, uh, Christy Tai is also on the line. Hi, Christy. Hi, everybody. Uh, Christy, um, can you just uh, tell us how uh, it's going to work if people want to get participate? Yeah, I would love to. There are a couple of ways to participate tonight. Uh, first, you can call in from your telephone. Just dial one three four seven nine eight nine. 8904. Now, when you're ready to make a comment or ask a question, just press 1 on your telephone. That will indicate that you would like to be on the air. When you're done with your question, just press 1 again until another time when you may want to speak. Also remember, if you're on the phone line, just turn down the volume on your computer and only listen on the phone since there is a delay and it's confusing. I'll try to get to the callers as I see them in order. Now, a second way to listen is to listen live via your computer and join the chat room. You will, however, have to register with Blog Talk Radio first. Very easy. Then if you have a question or comment, just type it in in the chat room, and we'll address it on the air. Okay. Thank you, Christy. While, um, I, as I said earlier, that this was uh, sponsored by the Urban Boards Committee to participate, uh, this is not an official meeting of the Urban Boards Committee. It's more of an informational meeting, and I think some of the issues we'll be discussing are important to board members, uh, no matter where they are. Um because we're going to be talking about issues such as uh, tenure reform, teacher evaluations, uh, vouchers, um, and the likes, and even uh, school funding for a little bit. Uh, so let's get started on some of these questions and some of the issues. Uh, Shavar, you sit on the Newark Advisory Board. Uh, how do you view – let's start with charter schools and choice. How do you view charter schools in your district? Are they a competition that undermines the resources that you have or – are they helpful, or are they in your school district? I think they're very helpful. Um, I think I think public charter schools are a very important part of the menu of things we need to do to make sure every child in North receives a high quality education. Uh, by no means, you know, are they a panacea, uh, but I think they're a, a critical part of the menu of options that, uh, and the menu of of kind of changes we need to um, make sure every kid gets a great ever, ed, great ever ed, education. I think it's it's very important for. For parents to have options and to be able to make choices about uh, the kind of school they think best serves the need of their kids, I think it's very important for. Um, I think it's very important, frankly, for the district to have competitive pressure, uh, because sometimes school districts, and particularly urban districts, uh, that can be highly politicized and have a range of organized interests that bring, uh, you know, their interests to bear on the system. I think it's, it's important for the uh, public system to be able to compete with other providers uh, because otherwise there can be a tendency to make decisions that are in the best interest of, of unions, the best interest of uh, politicians, the best interest of political machines. And I think the more power parents have to make decisions 
about the best education provider for their kid, uh, the more likely we're going to have a system of schools that, as a general matter, make uh, decisions that are kid-focused rather than adult-focused. So I think they're a very important part of the menu. They are not a panacea because sometimes we get into in these kind of bizarre either-or conversations. Um, they're, not, they're not a silver bullet, but nor are they the bane of our existence and the reason that um, some of our schools are underperforming. Uh, do you see them uh, – do you work – does the school district try to work with the charter schools, or are they just separate entities? The district does their own one thing, and the charter schools do their own thing, or do they collaborate at all in Newark? You know, we haven't had as much collaboration in Newark that I think we, we should and that I hope we will in the future. I know some districts – I know Boston, for example, they just – announced a compact between the district schools and the public charters to share best practices around teaching and school leadership and, and curriculum and, and that sort of thing. I don't think we've seen as much of that. We've seen some efforts, um, you know, in that regard, but I think it's been more individualized. I think some individual charter leaders and some individual school principals have taken it upon themselves to kind of share practices and to collaborate and coordinate. You know, we have a few co-location sites, uh, this year, and at least one of them, I know that the two principals have have purposely tried to collaborate and share best practices, um, but we haven't had as as much uh, formalized sharing and collaboration as I think we we could. All right, uh, Stan, um, from your perspective uh, with the Education Law Center, I know there are some concerns with not per se charter schools in and of themselves, but how they're authorized or uh, and how they're funded. Could you uh, tell me how you see uh, charter schools fitting in there and how it can maybe, from your perspective, either improve on the situation? Sure. Um, you know, before I, I came to work for the Education Law Center, I taught English and journalism to high school kids in Patterson for 30 years. So, uh, and there were weeks where I wanted to start my own school, and I, I certainly understand uh, Shavar's concern about making sure that kids have options and parents have choices. But in the past 10 years, uh, the character of the charter movement has changed dramatically from community-based, educator-initiated local efforts to create alternatives for a small number of students to nationally funded efforts by <clears throat> excuse me, uh, foundations, investors, educational management companies to create almost a, a parallel, more private system. And while I think charters were originally conceived as a, a kind of laboratory for innovation, in too many places, including our urban districts, charters are functioning more like, you know, deregulated enterprise zones than models of reform and providing subsidized spaces for a few at the expense of the many. And I think we need to find ways to make um, common policies that uh, improve educational options for all kids because any um, – I mean, no one would question the desire of parents to find the best options they can for their kids. Uh, but any strategy that promotes charter expansion at the expense of equity for all kids and system-wide improvement is really a strategy for privatization. And I think we're kidding ourselves if we don't think that there are some elements of that in the charter movement. So I think what we need to do is to uh, take New Jersey's charter law, which is over 15 years old, which doesn't account for a lot of the changes that have taken place in the educational landscape, I think we have to make sure that the polarized environment, which has not been helpful for our urban communities or our urban parents or our urban schools, becomes less polarized by bringing local districts and local communities, giving them a say in the establishment and the funding of charter schools. There's a bill in the legislature that would uh, require local approval for charter schools that I think is, uh, is something that Education Law Center supports. And finally, there's also, I think, a bill to improve the accountability and um, um, transparency of charter schools and how funding and accountability and the movement of students to make sure that charter schools accurately reflect the demographics of the districts in them. So I think there are ways in which we can make charter schools, you know, a better part of a reform strategy that strengthens public education instead of weakens it. Um, Stan, uh, would you also... How about the funding mechanism for them? Is that because uh, Shavar even mentioned that they feel they should be collaborating a little bit more? And I think the whole idea behind them, one of the ideas anyway, was for to have a collaboration for them to be those experiments. Does that the way they're funded, taking resources, the funding away from uh, the host district, does that force kind of a competition? And 
and also almost doesn't foster the collaboration that we all seek? Right. This is why we think local districts, local boards of education, local communities need to have uh, some say in approval in the location of charter schools. The way it is now, we have the state authorizing charter schools and then them having a very disruptive effect on the local budget process. And I think the perfect example of this right now is the kind of mess we have in Teaneck, where a school board trying to plan for next year gets a letter from the Department of Education that it should set aside $15 million almost 20% of its budget for a charter school that's a virtual charter school that the charter school law never envisioned that might get approved, might not get approved, that would draw from many places, but Teaneck has is, is gotten a bill that is very disruptive uh, for its planning. And, and it's <coughs> happened even in Newark, which we're now $120 million of the, of the district's budget is going to charter schools without the district being involved in the planning and the approval and the, and the expansion of charter schools. So we need to have a better system that does not pit charter schools against local public schools. ELC supports public charter schools. We've supported full funding for charter schools, but we don't support the current system in which charter schools are placed in districts and actually hurt the programs and ability of local school districts to fund their public schools. Uh, Deborah, did you comment? Have a comment? Oh, yeah, Shavar, you can comment. Well, what I, what I was saying, and I really hope we don't get fall back to these kind of stale boxes of the kind of, uh, you know, the extremes. Because, again, to me, you know, the public charter sector um, complements nicely, if, if done correctly. But I think some of what Stan said rests on the wrong premise and even the question. The money doesn't belong to the district. The money is designed to educate the child. Right, so it's not it. So when we talk about money being taken away, I think it, I think it, it, the, the the kind of foundational assumption is wrong. The money is for the baby, is to educate the baby. If the parent says my child can be better educated elsewhere, then the money should follow the child. I mean, we wouldn't have this sort of conversation if people decide to move out of Newark, which many have done over a long period of time in search of better schools. We don't have this sort of conversation when people in Newark decide to send their kids to private schools, which many have done uh, for a long period of time, given the underperformance of our district for a long period of time. So, you know, so, so I think this kind of false notion that the district, that, that the money belongs to the district. The money, and the reason why we have that $120 million is because our district hasn't gotten a job done for a few decades right now, and parents are dying for something else. Right? So we need well, to really address this. that fundamental issue. So that no, nobody has to go to a charter school, right? Okay, no, if you can have all of these charters, no parent has to go. The reason they want to go is because they're craving a better education for their child. Okay, Deborah, you had a question or a comment? Uh-huh, yes, yeah, Shavar. Okay, now do you think that there should be an actual vote from the community to see whether or not charter schools should be in their district, in their community, <clears throat> in their neighborhood? Absolutely not. I mean, I okay, think the then parent, let me... I think, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, don't go. finish. Go ahead. Go ahead, Shafar. Well, I'm just going to provide a little context. I mean, I think that, um, I mean, first of all, I think there should be robust authorization, and I absolutely do think that local districts should also be able to, to, to uh, authorize their own charter schools. But to me, the vote should be of the parent, so that if the school is providing a service that parents want for their children, they should make that choice. The notion that, because in a place like Newark, these elections are highly politicized, and they turn upon what, uh, entities and interests have the best capacity to organize themselves and to pull out people in the election. Parents tend to be uh, disadvantaged in that context. So the notion that we're going we're gonna to throw that into the, the political process every time a new charter wants to open to me is, is counterproductive and not in the best interest of kids. Well, then let me ask you this. How can you ensure that there's an equal door open for all students to come into those charter schools? Well, I think that's because you don't, the because you might not have uh, an, a parent that's very active with a brilliant student. Now, how do you ensure that if that child is having a desire to go there? Well, I, I mean, because I mean, I mean, a public school will take all. Well, but that's deliver. not always true either. Unfortunately, I mean, we've had, uh, you know, we have individual schools oftentimes that where principals will seek to deny kids with an IEP. And I think everyone should agree, all, all schools should serve all. And there are some charters that absolutely skim, and we need DOE to hold them accountable. I mean, they should be serving all kids. Uh, we, we've heard of some charter schools in Newark and elsewhere that after the October 15th count, when they get their money, will kick kids out. That's, that's totally reprehensible, and that's why we need the authorizer 
to enforce the law, enforce the rules, and hold folks accountable. I mean, if there's charters that are kind of, uh, you know, putting a thumb on the scale of just trying to track certain kinds of kids and not equitably trying to serve all, we need to enforce our law. But we need to do the same because we have many district schools that, uh, at least in Newark, unfortunately, do that as well. So to me, that's not a charter district issue. That's a kind of fairness issue and making sure that all schools fairly and equitably treat all kids. Shabar, Stan brought up the point uh, about charters not having the same student body as their district. And I, Stan, if, uh, if I'm correct, you're probably thinking of special ed and English as second language students. Yes, uh, and if I could, I just, you know, I agree with, with Shavar. These, these are complicated issues that don't lend themselves easily to sound bites. And I am totally for having dialogue between public charter schools and, and public schools. But also I think Shavar said something that was interesting when he talked about having parents make the choice just as parents made the, you know, some people made the choice to leave Newark. And I think it's very important that public education be recognized as a, a very central public institution of a democratic society. And I am very concerned about charters becoming a vehicle by which we have a market system in public education, which will do for schools what the market has done for housing, for health care, for the job market, which has produced very unequal opportunities for a few, and that, I mean very unequal opportunities for the many, and fabulous profits for a few. So I don't exactly. think we can afford a market in public education, and that's one of my concerns. Okay, uh, I guess I would only say to that is what do we have now? We have a district in Newark which which is the epitome of inequity. I mean, where kids where kids on a very broad basis uh, have have access to an education that one out of only two kids get out of high school, right? And and the whole city of Newark is frankly a manifestation of massive disinvestment around race and around class. I mean, it's it's a kind of codification of inequity. So so I mean, this notion that that giving parents some modicum of choice. Um, you somehow then brings in this inequity. I just don't see how that squares with the facts. Shavar, now, that, uh, I think I, I, I'm totally with these concerns. We definitely have some charters that skim. We definitely have some charters that won't serve kids with special needs, and we need to police that, and we need to enforce the rules that protect against that. And I think exactly. the DOE can do more work in that regard. So you would support, uh, I think Stan mentioned, that uh, holding the charter schools accountable, as you would any other school, I, I assume. And, and that's kind of where I come at. See, I wish we could figure out a way to get to that place because at, at the end of the day, I'm personally just for good schools. I just want kids in schools to be educated well. And I really don't care too much about the label. I mean, if it's a traditional district school and is doing great things for kids, that's a blessing. If it's a, if it's a public charter school and is doing great things for kids, that's a beautiful thing. If it's a bad public charter school and they're discriminating against kids or they're kicking kids out, after October 15th, they need to be held accountable. Maybe they even need to be closed if they're chronically bad in that way. But I would say the same. We have plenty of district schools where they, can, where they won't serve kids who have an IEP, where they've been failing for a long period of time. So I would just like to say, what do we? I think it would be great if we get to a place where what should all schools look like and how do we get all schools to that place. And part of the reason I think public charter schools are an important part of the mix is because we have to have competitive pressure on our traditional system because we can have this romanticized vision of how school board members get elected and how they make decisions. And a place like North, too often it's about patronage, it's about self-dealing, and, 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 and too little about kids. Uh, and you don't, think that happen, you don't think that happened or occurs in, in the charter school system? I'm sure it does. Where you, you, you have the politics inside that too as well? It might, but you know the difference is when a parent sees that, they can say, my baby is leaving here tomorrow. So I don't, I don't need to go organize five to 8,000 other people. I don't need to go fundraise and run people for a school board election. Me and my baby are out of here tomorrow, and that's an entirely different kind of accountability that I wish we had for all schools. All right. Um, Stan, um, do you have any other comments on uh, charter schools before I start moving on uh, to other subjects? Yeah. I mean, I really think that the common ground here that we could find, I mean, I think Shavar and I have a, perhaps a different idea as to uh, what competition and the market would do to the public institution of democratic schooling. But leaving that aside, I think we could agree here that what we need is a better plan that includes local communities, that includes local school boards. I mean, one of the problems, frankly, in Newark that I think Shavar and I agree on is that the district has, does not have local control and that the state is making a lot of decisions that the community does not feel, um, you know, represent its concerns. 
And there needs to be greater transparency, greater accountability for the practice of all schools, including charter schools, in serving uh, its populations. I agree with everything Stan just said. All right. Maybe I should end on that that agreement. <laughs> I, think most well, I, on I agree things. on that, too, because I think the school board should be involved in both charter and like we are in the regular public schools as well. well I think that way... Yeah, that way we're share, we're sharing the responsibility of getting these children educated and, and, I think and overseeing a, it. I think Shavar brought a, a good point is that it, he would like his district to have the ability to start their own <coughs> excuse me, their own charter schools. Right. And I, I guess you think in that in that if you had that ability, the collaboration might be even better and you could really work some uh get some good programs and maybe learn better. Is that what you're thinking? I, I think so. I mean, I think I think the DOE should also, and I'd love to even see some independent authorizers, like you see in some other states where you see some universities or or independent nonprofits. So, but I think the district should also have the power, and and for many reasons. I think you know I think it gives the district um, absolutely in terms of the collaborative um, kind of purposes that you're talking about. I think it facilitates that. I, th- I think it gives the district an opportunity to provide some competitive options within a framework where it can has more control over the resources because, you know, we talked earlier about um, the fact that there is a resource cost to the district when a parent chooses to pull their kid out. Um, that's part of the reason we just launched uh, four new high schools within the district to provide to kind of provide some options within the district. But part of what the charter does, though, is it frankly creates a, a school free from some of the bureaucratic constraints that we have, and that's part of what it is. I mean, I don't think any of these public charters have any magic, but when they can extend their day from 7.30 to 40, to, to, excuse me, 7.30 to 4.30, and they don't have to deal with three years of union negotiations to get 15 minutes, which is what our history has been, when they can say if we have an educator and you're doing a great job for kids, um, you know, we can we can incentivize that, and if you're doing a bad job for kids, we can get rid of you a little bit quicker because you don't have oftentimes some of the collective bargaining constraints. That that gives them a leg up. I mean, those are the competitive advantages I wish we had in the district, and I think that's why it'd be great for local districts to charter because, frankly, you could create schools that are free from some of these impediments that I think hurt kids. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I'm sorry, Ray, if I could jump in no, here. I mean, I certainly. think we also have to have a, a very much more public and transparent discussion about performance because while there are a lot of claims about the innovation, uh, innovative character of charter schools, you know, the performance of charter schools both nationally and in New Jersey has been extremely uneven, and it's very much paralleled, you know, the public schools and who the population is in the particular school. So where, you know, local schools and local educators should be free from bureaucratic constraints, that should be true of the public schools as well as the charter schools. There is no magic bullet here in charter schools, as Shavar said earlier. And I think what we need to be a little bit focused on is how do we have equitable, transparent policies that provide good choices for all kids. Okay, we're going to move on to other issues. We're talking with Shavar Jeffries, Deborah Bridges, and uh, Stan Karp. Uh, if you if you're listening, and you want to ask a question. The number is one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four, and you just press one. Um, okay, charter schools are public schools. Um, they have public monies for public students. Vouchers and the Opportunity Scholarship Act is not is public monies for private institutions. Um, now, there's been a bill that's been proposed out there for the last few years, and there's one that's out there, and I hear it's going to be changed again. Uh, but, Stan, what are your concerns with the Opportunity Scholarship Act and the voucher-type program? Public funds for private tuition is, you know, crosses a line that we should not cross. That would be very damaging to public education, and especially taking hundreds of millions of dollars out of the public schools especially on top of the budget cuts in recent years, would devastate many schools and many programs. Uh, One of the projects I work with besides the Education Law Center is a project called Rethinking Schools, which is based in Milwaukee. Milwaukee has been ground zero for vouchers, has a, a voucher program for over 20 years that has not produced better academic results, but has devastated the Milwaukee public school system You also have a time when charter schools and public schools are under very much increased accountability, none of which 
covers the private schools, none of which covers voucher schools or religious schools. They don't give the same test to their students. They don't have the same accountability and uh, transparency requirements. So vouchers in New Jersey is a line that I would not cross, and it's a very different line than public charter schools. Uh, Shavar, I know you like choice for your for the people of the city of Newark, and I guess any urban area you would support that choice. Do you support the choice with uh, a scholarship, a voucher program? You know, I think the best way to facilitate choice is through the public charter framework, and I think there's things we can do in New Jersey to, frankly, democratize our framework, including, you know, additional authorizers. Um, you know, so no, so I think the better way is to public uh, charter framework. That said, though, I mean, I'd obviously want to study any particular voucher bill. I'm personally a kid. You know, I grew up in North. I grew up like most kids grew up in North. My mom was a teenage mom. My father was not around. I'm here today because I got a scholarship through the Boys and Girls Club of North to go to Seton Hall Prep in high school. And then when I went to college, you know, because we talk about public funding, private tuition, I only made it through college because I had Pell Grants, I had Stafford loans, and I used Stafford loans to pay my way through law school too, which were publicly subsidized opportunities. So I say all that to say because I'm only here because, frankly, I got a scholarship to go to a college prep private school, I would never deny other kids that option. So if a bill came to me, I'd want to study it. I'd want to make sure Stan says that if because the public can impose accountability on any provider that's going to accept the benefit. So, so the public could clearly say in the bill that if you accept the payment, then it has to be the full tuition. If you accept the payment, kids have to be tested in certain kinds of ways. If you accept the payment, you agree to certain kinds of accountability, uh, because I do entirely agree that not all private schools created equal. Some are horrible. I would never support for-profit private entities being involved in a voucher program, but non-profit uh, private entities that are doing great things for kids and a bill to ensure that there was adequate accountability and a bill that was means-tested so that it was focused on those kids who are in the greatest need, a bill craft like that I would personally support. But, again, I think the better way to facilitate choice is through uh, a smart, democratically uh, accountable uh, public charter framework. Uh, Stan, now, obviously, what's going to be proposed this Bill changes all the time, but my last understanding of the bill that was proposed was uh, Shavar brought up means tested. I think it was they were de dedicating some funds to students already in private schools, if I'm correct. Right. I have not seen any, you know, like Shavar says, you need to see the bill, but the bill that was proposed that has been on the table and is introduced uh, doesn't meet a lot of the criteria that we would both agree on. Uh, for requiring public funds. It dedicates 25% uh, of the um, money, which could be up to uh, 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 $800 million in the original version of the bill, uh, for students who already attend private schools and attend private religious schools. These are very tricky lines. These are dangerous lines for uh, public dollars to uh, cross, especially at a time when public services and like public education are being underfunded, are being cut back, um, it, it is an inappropriate use of public funds. Uh, just for any of our listeners, uh, I probably should. Uh, New Jersey School Board Association, like Stan, does draw a line through our policy that uh, public funds shouldn't be used for private uh, schools. And also on the previous issue, we do support uh, the public vote on uh, charter schools. I know Shavar has his issues in Newark, but in, in a lot of other districts, the community is definitely not supporting the, the charter schools. Uh, and we also would but agree with Shavar that local districts should have the ability to start their own charter schools. Um, let's switch from the, the choice issues now. Uh, switch to like the teacher issues, because uh, the governor has really made it uh, obvious that he uh, really does not like tenure. He thinks it's an antiquated system. Uh, and really does nothing to help our students. It's strictly there to benefit adults. Uh, Shavar, what are your feelings on tenure? Because I'm sure high-quality teachers are important to education. You know, I think teachers, I think a great teacher is God's gift, you know, to our children. And in a place like Newark, our teachers and our school leaders, they have an unbelievably difficult job. I think it's the most difficult job in America. And I think we really need to begin to treat our educators like the amazing professionals we expect them to be. For me, that means dramatically better pay. I think our educators are entirely underpaid. I think they need more autonomy and better professional development. But I also think in terms of treating our educators like professionals, I'm not aware of any profession in the United States where three years in out of after college you get this sort of lifetime 
uh, guarantee. You know, I'm a professor, and the only way we get tenure, we have to go about eight years, and we have to publish at the highest level, and we have to be distinguished across the nation in terms of our work. I mean, if we had a standard similar to that, I could support uh, tenure, but see, I, I, I guess I have the crazy notion that I think you should keep your job by doing a good job. You know, and, 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 and I also think and it's also the case that there's a range of other protections that maybe didn't exist when some of the tenure laws first came on the books, but we have, you know, uh, employment laws that protect people against discrimination based on race, gender, religion. We have the age discrimination law, which protects people based on who are who are terminated because of their seniority. Uh, once they reach the age of 40, we have whistleblower statutes so that people can't be uh, fired or adversely treated on a job because they call out, uh, you know, inappropriate practices. You have the due process clause of the state and federal constitutions which say that no public employee can be fired without notice and opportunity to be heard and, and information about the reasons for the termination. You have the First Amendment, which says you can't have political-based terminations except for the most senior political uh, position. So we have all of those rules already, and it just seems to me to have these highly burdensome tenure rules, at least the way they're structured now. You know, I, so I wouldn't say I would never support tenure. I think we need dramatic reform of the tenure rules. To me, I would reserve tenure for the most extraordinary educators we have who really demonstrated an ability to uh, to do amazing things for kids. Everyone else, I would say you, you keep your job by doing a great job for kids. And as long as you're doing that, uh, we love you and we want to treat you like God's gift you are. But to the extent you're kind of consistently not serving kids, we've got to have a more flexible mechanism for making sure only great educators are in front of our kids. Uh, Stan, I know, now I know you're a former teacher, so mm -hmm. you, you might have slightly different view on uh, tenure, but uh, do you think uh, – we should reform tenure uh, laws? I do, but first I think we should get clear on what tenure is. If tenure was a lifetime guarantee of a job, we would not have had 300,000 teachers laid off in the last three three years. Teacher, uh, you know, Tenure does not guarantee you a job. It guarantees you due process after a certain time on the job before you are dismissed. And I think there's actually a lot of common ground on the need to reform and improve tenure. Uh, I think there is common ground on the need for reasonable, timely procedures for resolving tenure uh, hearings when they're initiated, for better preparation and evaluation before teachers get tenure. You know, 50% of the teachers leave before uh, five years. 50% of the people went to the profession, and that's a real problem with uh, stability, especially in urban districts. And I think there's common ground on a credible intervention process to remediate and, if necessary, remove ineffective teachers, uh, tenured and non-teachers. And they're good models for each of these uh, ideas. But the current polarization and the governor's bashing of teachers and bashing of tenure has really polarized and undermined efforts to improve and reform this, uh, this policy. Um, one of the things that has really made this ridiculous is the attempt to uh, quantify the performance of teachers with these psychometric astrology formulas about uh, uh, value-added measures, and in New Jersey we're using a, a student growth percentile measure, which makes no attempt to isolate for teacher effect or, or really is, is just kind of an overreach instead of finding the common ground, which I think, you know, I would find a lot of common ground with Javar on the need to hold teachers accountable for their performance, for their professional behavior, for professional standards. Uh, there are some really good models in Montgomery County, in Cincinnati, in other places of how this can be done. Uh, but I think if the goal is simply to create a cheaper, less stable, less experienced, and less secure uh, labor force and to break unions, then we have a polarized situation that makes improvement of professional practice very difficult. Well, yeah. I think from Shavar's point of view, Shavar, please uh, chime in. You're looking just to get the best teachers into the classroom for your students in your district. And, and if tenure prevents you from doing that, uh, or, or prevents you from, ex you know, uh, getting rid of teachers that you don't feel are as good, that hurts children. Is that what your <coughs> that's right. point of view? Yeah, that's right. That's been a lot of time with our principals. And, um, you know, I think our teachers are most – I think our teachers are God's gift. I mean, in fact, I think teachers will be paid a lot more, right? So, I mean, so if there are others out there who want to actually figure out a way to pay teachers less or 
or or to reduce the investments in personnel. I think that's absurd, outrageous, and going to hurt kids. I think our teachers deserve to have a ridiculously difficult job, particularly in a place like Newark, because our kids, we have kids who are coming to school with post-traumatic stress, who are seeing things in their daily lives that most adults don't have the capacity to deal with. So I think we have to pay it, but precisely because the job is so difficult and is so important, the future of our children, the future of our city, the future of our country depends on it, precisely because it's so important, we need the very best we can get. And we got to well, have mechanisms. And, and last thing I'll just say quickly, we got not everybody's the best in any profession. I'm a lawyer. Most lawyers are very bad, and I wouldn't advise most clients to get most of the lawyers I come across. So, and we have a range of educators, and the ones who aren't doing great things for kids, it seems to me we have to have a flexible way to move them out quicker. It takes us over two and a half years in Newark to go through the tenure process for one teacher, and it, spend, it costs us a couple hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, that doesn't seem to me to be in the best interest of kids, that sort of framework. Deborah, did you have a Yes, comment? I wanted to know from both um, Stan and Shavar. The teacher, the teacher evaluation form that they're trying to compose, should that one teacher evaluation form fit all school districts throughout the state of New Jersey? Because I have ambivalent feelings about that. Because I'm saying, look, if you're in a rural area, if you're in an urban area, if you're in an affordable area, I mean, I don't believe that one teacher's evaluation should fit all. You're saying that in Newark, Shavar, that they have a tremendous job to do. So why should I give them this here? Why should I test them or, 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 you know, put them on this evaluation form and where I have other communities like Short Hills or something like that where, okay, everybody's, you know, they've got their computers and all their IT equipment and everything and, you know, the cars and whatever else they need to, to make school, you know, the best that they can can be. And I'm going to have that evaluation form. I think the evaluation forms are, are is completely wrong, what they're doing. And then the people that are trying to put the evaluation forms together, who are they? How are you going to tell me that you're going to get a team of people to doing a teacher's evaluation form, and I don't even know what your background is. So but yet we're trying to, but yet we're trying to scrutinize teachers right now. This is where, once again, law center, urban centers, Shavar districts, and, and um, even even your teachers and whatnot really need to stand up and say, "Look, this is how evaluation forms should should look." So your question, you know, Deborah, is about teacher evaluation. You don't feel the evaluation models at least in some districts, are not valid no. or not strength. And to your other point is, and I think Shavar touched on this a little bit, not maybe not directly, that maybe teaching in an urban area is a, a different type of teaching than teaching in other places and that we really need to train those teachers and get the best we can. Because mm-hmm, we need to get together on this, on this teacher evaluation form. I'd like to get their comments on teacher evaluations and teaching in urban areas uh, because it may be uh, it, it may be a different type of teaching. Stan, why don't you go first on this one? Well, you know, I think my experience in Patterson is 30 years of a high school teacher, in which I was the lead teacher of a of a small school community as we attempted to break down a large high school, is that you need to um, a lot of elements in order to create a professional. Um, collaborative culture that's going to support and develop. You know, our real problem is not so much getting rid of bad teachers as keeping and growing good ones. Mm-hmm. And the focus on on eliminating bad teachers is a little bit misguided because what we really need is to find better ways to grow and improve, um, you know, development of, of good teachers. So I would support, for example, I believe there's a bill in the legislature right now that would replace what Shavar identified as a cumbersome and costly process for removing teachers who have tenure with uh, an arbitrator process that would be decided in 90 days. I think that would deal with a lot of the procedural issues. But at the level of schools, I think you have to invest in the professional development and the professional quality of the staff, including the school leaders and the principal, and some kind of collaborative, collectively bargained um, peer evaluation, peer review, the Montgomery County, Maryland model of the National Board uh, Certified Teacher Standards then being supported with a a whole system of consulting teachers and actually accountability for all staff in the whole school is a much better model than having the New Jersey Department of Education or the state legislature adopt a one-size-fits-all set of regulations that are rolled out. I was very happy to see that at least Commissioner Surf backed away from taking this underdeveloped pilot and mandating something for next year. 
but I think you can see in Long Island and New York City where they rolled out, uh, you know, a state-mandated process for doing this in every district, and you have almost a thousand principals saying no. This process is going to destroy our professional culture in the school. So it's a complicated problem, but I agree that we should resolve the procedural issues and then invest in the professional development of school leaders and professional staff at the school and district level. Uh, Shavar, uh, teacher evaluation, because actually, you know, we started on tenure, but you really can't change the tenure rules unless you have really good evaluation models. so, and I know the governor wants to tie teacher evaluations in some part, at least 50%, to student achievement. How do you view, you know, because Deborah commented on, on this, how do you view, it's a two-part question, I guess, the urban educators is a different type of teaching, and also how do we evaluate teachers? How Can we improve on that? Yeah, I basically agree with both what, what Deborah and Stan are saying. You know, I mean, I think, I think, first of all, I definitely think the tenure piece is just one small piece. I mean, I think we need everything, and we can't, you know, whether it's the charter piece, the tenure piece, the professional development piece, sometimes we talk about these pieces piece in isolation. I mean, the tenure piece only just deals with your, your bottom level of folks, and clearly what we need is to massively invest in professional development, mentoring, professional culture, professional collaboration, feedback, um, and, and, uh, and development and training, you know, for educators. So, I mean, I, I totally support that. Um, I, I think that makes perfect sense. I also think it's also unwise for, for a, a uniform straight jacket to come out of Trenton that would apply to all school districts and all individual schools. So I absolutely agree with Deborah and stand on that. My view is you got to empower principals. I mean, in a profession, there has to be discretion, and it is true some people can use discretion improperly, and that's why you have to have training and, and standards. But in a profession, people have to have discretion. I think you have to empower the principals to make uh, these sorts of decisions that are closest to the children, that are closest to the educators, they're in the buildings every day. They ought to know who's good, who's not, who needs development, and who's so bad that we got to move them out quickly. Um, and to that point, in terms of evaluation, I think – you know, I think you need to have a flexible system because different kids have different needs, and not even just within the city, even within within our city. We have a range of schools that have diverse student populations, and, and different schools may have different focuses um, in terms of how they really measure, you know, whether or not folks are doing a good job. I mean, I do think achievement should be a significant part of it. I mean, it's kind of perplexing to me that that's controversial. I mean, the whole reason we fund public schools is to educate children effectively and, and and, and to the extent we have benchmarks that measure whether or not kids have the knowledge we expect them to have, uh, I don't. It's it's kind of bizarre to me that that wouldn't be a part of it. You know, most law schools, for example, evaluate themselves and even evaluate uh, individual members of the institution based upon bar passage rate because that's a kind of key indicator of are we preparing our students effectively. So the notion that that would be some sort of third rail that it shouldn't be part of the analysis to me is ridiculous. Now, how we measure student achievement is obviously very important. I mean, it shouldn't obviously be fixed on a standardized test and that sort of thing. But the notion that student achievement shouldn't be a robust part of the evaluation, uh, I just can't understand that. I mean, that's the whole point of why we're a public school. So, so the notion that we wouldn't evaluate the ultimate goal of what we do seems to me, uh, you know, insensible. Well, Stan, right. on that I, point, I, I, I think I, you might I, have an opinion on that. Uh, can we, I mean, that's a nice you said it before soundbite. Is it that easy to measure student achievement? Do we have that ability right now? I think that I, I totally agree with Shavar. There's no question that student progress and student achievement should be a part of the evaluation of schools and the evaluation of teachers, the evaluation of principals. It's, and you need multiple measures of what that means. Um, I think one of the problems is that standardized tests have been disguising race and class privilege as merit for decades. And now they are being used to move decisions about teaching and learning using these test scores and these standardized test scores as the sole measure of deciding whether or not teachers uh, get tenure, whether or not teachers get raises, whether schools are open. And it's moving decisions about teaching and learning away from classrooms, away from schools, away from districts, and putting them in the hands of political bureaucracies that have other agendas. So I am totally in favor of using multiple measures of student progress, including test scores, in evaluating the success of educational programs and educational professionals. What I am opposed to is the kind of test and punish approach to reform that we've seen with NCLB, 
that is being proposed with the teacher evaluation pilot, and that was is actually all through the uh, state's NCLB waiver agreement or uh, application. And so, as usual, it's a complicated issue, and unless you have the people who have to do the work involved in the determination of what the appropriate standards are, you're going to get very problematic approaches that have not served our schools, our kids, or our teachers very well. Now, and I'll ask either one of you this, I, the way that they're looking to uh, increase the evalu- improve the evaluations of teachers, you're doing it more often. Uh, it's a little bit more comprehensive. You might involve more other groups. I think even the uh, governor's task force recommended some type of peer review. Um, so that's more involved. You might have to have more testing uh, or some type of assessment at almost in every class. Stan, that sounds expensive to me uh, in the sense that uh, Shavar talked about empowering principals. It's a lot of time and effort if we increase the number of times we're evaluating all the teachers, and I'm not sure we have enough administrators to do that. Is that a concern? What? That oh, I think it's a huge concern. I mean, I think the concern, you know, at this point, investing in more standardized tests in order to measure student uh, achievement is like passing out thermometers in the malaria epidemic. You know, as, as Shavar mentioned, we have lots of indicators that kids are not succeeding in some communities and need to have better supports and better educational programs. Increasing the number of te- standardized tests and raise, you know, the problem is not so much the tests, as the stakes that are being attached to the tests and the way in which this is distorting (laughs) both curriculum and professional practice. And so I think what you need is better school leaders and more collaborative professional environments in schools that use a very transparent process that should include parents, that should include students in evaluating the health and, and governance of schools, and that should not be driven by pouring millions of dollars into testing companies and data systems that allow people far removed from the schools to make the key decisions about what needs to happen. Shavar, if you move in this area, would you uh, support more funding for improving the teacher evaluation model? Because uh, actually, I think my understanding is that these pilot districts got grants to improve their system. So I guess the, even the Department of Ed realizes that there's a cost involved. Yeah, no, I think I think absolutely. I, mean, I think the DOE's role should be to ensure a kind of floor, like like what's the kind of minimum in terms of what evaluation should look like um, throughout the state, you know, in terms of, you know, making sure it's, it's rooted in some evidence that shows it's a mechanism that's actually designed to measure effective uh, teaching and learning. Um, I do think, I don't think it's a problem for the state to say there should be, um, it should be significantly ba- rooted in student achievement. Uh, I agree entirely with Stan. You've got to have a diverse set of um, indicators of student achievement. I do think, though, a standardized test, a, a good one should be a part of it, but it definitely can't be the only thing. Um, you you want to have a bunch of different mechanisms. And I think absolutely the state, I think that's also an important part of their role, to provide the resources to make sure that every school district in the state can meet that minimum, uh, you know, sort of sort of baseline. But then I think you want to have flexibility so that a superintendent and his or her principals uh, can kind of collaborate, principals can collaborate with their teachers about, you know, hey, what, what should we expect over the next year for these children who are going to be with us 185 days a year, six and a half hours a day? Where should they be at the end of the year, how do we measure over the course of a year how we get there. So I think the state should set a floor um, and also should set guidelines for the for um, the expectations of any local, you know, evaluation system. And then it should all obviously also provide the resources. I think you got to have some flexibility. I mean, we have so many different communities, kids with so many different needs. Um, exactly. And you got to have that flexibility. You know, there exactly. was a um, – Shavar, you said something earlier uh, – about empowering principals, and uh, apparently the legislature listened to you uh, because there's a bill sponsored by Senator Teresa Ruiz on tenure reform, which takes the personnel decisions out of the hand, the final pers- or most of the personnel decisions out of the hands of the superintendent and the board for approval, uh, and lays it completely in the hands of the principal, um, which I think is a. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have empower principals. I think most superintendents in the relationship with the principal lets them make that decision. Uh, do you have any concerns or thoughts on that provision of the bill, uh, Stan? 
Um, well, you know, I have some concerns about having a model that simply makes the school the, uh, you know, the small business of the principal who makes all the decisions. It's not that, you know, I think that's kind of part of the market model of how schools should run. Schools are community institutions. You need to have collaborative leadership. You need to have collective decision-making. You Certainly school leaders need to have um, – uh, a lot to say about what happens in their schools. I mean, I, I totally am uh, for better preparation and um, for principals having some say over staff placements and having some say over uh, certainly they have to play a greater role in teacher evaluation, although, frankly, there is no way principals are going to be able to do the kind of evaluation that's being expected of them unless they get greater support and more resources because the amount of time and energy that they're being asked to put into evaluation would make it impossible for them to do anything else. So I think I come back to the point of to have collaborative professional cultures in schools, you need to have everybody involved in defining the system and everybody held accountable. And frankly, that's not the kind of debate we're getting right now. What we're getting is a debate about exaggerated um, attempts to basically experiment on our schools and experiment on our kids rather than kind of uh, develop uh, best practices from things that actually have proven to work rather than mandating one size fits all uh, out of Trenton. Uh, Shavar, uh, do you want to expand on empowering principals? Do you see their role? I mean, you're on the advisory board uh, now in most districts. They do. To, I think they take the recommendation to principal who gives it to the superintendent, and the superintendent, depending on the size of the district, will then make a recommendation to the board. And boards, for the most part, I would say 98, 99% of the time, follow the recommendation of the superintendent. Uh, do you want to empower your principals to that degree? Uh, you know, I, I don't know Senator's bill fully. I mean, I, I don't. I wouldn't support a rule that says the superintendent can never, you know, supersede. Uh, a principal. I, I think the I think uh, the very strong presumption ought to be that the principal makes decisions at the school level about teachers um, and educators, and frankly about all of the staff in that building in terms of are they doing great things for kids. But I do think you should have some sort of safety valve that um, you know if in some extraordinary circumstance the superintendent thinks that the principal's judgment is wrong, that the superintendent reserves the right you know in that kind of case to uh, to kind of veto. So, so I wouldn't go all the way to say it should be absolute principal autonomy, but I think the principals have to be empowered. And somebody has to be held accountable, right? You can't, you know, to say everyone will make these decisions. I mean, the principal is supposed to be the educational professional. And, of course, parents should be involved. Community should be involved. But the buck at some point has to stop with somebody. Somebody has to be accountable for what's happening in that building. And the principal ought to be an educational leader, Ought to be ought to have significant experience and be able to bring that experience to bear on what's happening within that building. Um, so I think you got to empower him or her uh, with the authority to actually lead. Right? You can't hold a principal accountable for for performance, uh, but you, and results, but you won't give that principal the tools to actually lead. And we've seen that in many of our school districts, where the central office will place teachers in buildings over the objection over the, of the principal, take take educators out of buildings over the objection of the principal, and then say the principal uh, then give then burden the principal with a contract where the principal can't keep staff past 250 to provide a supplemental services to kids. And then you say to the principal, we need to produce uh, significant progress in terms of student achievement. So I think that's a straitjacket uh, for principals, and, I, and we've seen that definitely in North, um, and that's been a, a cry that I've heard repeatedly from our principals. So I absolutely think we have to empower them. We have to give them the tools to lead. We have to support them. And then at the same time, the district, and they can't, you can't have this conversation without saying this, the superintendent and the district have to be very smart and much more strategic in many of our districts um, around principal selection. Um, all, sometimes in our urban districts, people can become principals based on who they know and the politics of that. So if you're going to empower the wrong people, then that, that's not going to help kids. So I'm totally with empowering principals. You have to have professional judgment and discretion if you're going to do great things for kids, but then our superintendents and our board have to be very smart about making sure every building is stocked with a, a very effective principal. Yeah, I don't think, I think that's one reason. I guess if I could jump in, I think that's one reason that I'm concerned about some of the proposals to actually reduce the qualifications for principals and uh, superintendents before they actually take on these responsibilities, which has also been part of the proposals from the governor. Uh, would there be a concern, um, Shabar or Stan? I thought one of the other ideas was to put the best teachers in the 
most struggling schools if they could in the district. Um, but if you give the principal the authority, the, what's my incentive uh, to send my best teachers out? Because uh, I'm going to be held responsible for my school. But at the district level, wouldn't you be able to say, you know what, we have to shift the, the, the math department's week in this school. If we take some of our teachers from Building B to move into Building A, we're, we're having some problems. Isn't that a better use of the resources? And if you only had the principal have that authority, would that be a problem? Well, you know, I, in, in my 30 years uh, teaching, I had good principals and I had some principals that I would be very concerned about having <laughs> them having, you know, uh, that kind of authority. And that's why I mm. think you need you need a balance. You need checks and balances. Um, in some of these communities, we have 600 different school districts in New Jersey. Some of these are very small, very highly politicized communities, and um, even some of the big ones like Patterson and the others. Um, I don't think you can totally just leave it to a principal to make all these decisions. Uh, I also think that, um, you know, we're talking about solving these problems within a larger problem, which is that we have overwhelming concentrations of 70, 80 percent, 90 percent students of poverty in some schools and some districts, and we are not crossing these lines. And as long as we don't cross these lines, there are some problems we're not going to solve. And one of the problems is going to be the distribution of both resources and equity and teachers and experience, and we need to address some of those problems if we're really going to provide good options for everyone. Okay. Um, I, you know, this the, the issue with the principals, there's a movement, and I know um, Stan might be able to address this one, that to take the authority away from the local district, the local board, and the superintendent and move it more towards the school, even monitoring schools, not districts, um, and possibly if a school is failing for a number of years, taking the school away from the district and maybe not having a state take over the school, but a state run school through some other, almost like a charter school. Uh, Stan, I'm not sure how that works logistically. Um, do you have issues with that movement? Because I know the commissioner has mentioned that a, a few times. Right. Well, having you know taught, uh, and Shavar's had this experience too, having taught uh, in a state takeover district, I don't think the state takeover plan has worked so well. And I'm not looking for the state to take over more schools. And I'm also very concerned about only looking at schools instead of districts and the whole system. I've heard the commissioner talk about how he wants a uh, system of schools, not a school system. Well, you know, who has got responsibility for the equity concerns for all kids? I mean, schools and teachers serve the kids who are in their schools and in their classrooms. But some entity, which used to be the district, is supposed to take responsibility for all kids in the community. And what's happening with the charterizing, the privatization, the fragmentation of districts is no one is taking that equity agenda and making sure whether uh, that, that those equity concerns are being met. And so I have real concerns about fragmenting districts by separating all individual schools, hold all schools accountable, but I don't think you can separate them in a kind of market system, which I think is going to reproduce a lot of inequality and not necessarily provide good choices for all kids. Shavar, any thoughts on, yeah. like, if the commissioner or the DOE said the school's been failing, well, I, I'm not sure how they would do it. They already have your district, but taking it away from the superintendent, I guess, and having to become, like, a charter school of some sort within the district? Or would you, you know, want the would, district would, to have some authority over that? Yeah, I'd want to know a whole lot more about that, I mean, to be honest with you, and mm -hmm. what that means for kids. Um I think Stan raises some very uh, good points around around atomization, kind of fragmentation. I think, and I also agree with his earlier point, which is we already have a threshold of that given the proliferation of districts we have. I mean, we have over 600 districts. Newark, in many ways, there frankly aren't a lot of middle-class people in Newark, right? I mean, so at some point, right? So when we talk about within a place like Newark, skimming, there's just not that much stuff to skim, to be frank, right? I mean, you know, because of a lot of uh, history and decades of issues around race, class and, and the international economy and, and, and what have you. So so I'd want to explore that more. I mean, I don't know enough about the standards that would be applied. You know, what is the record of failure? How long must the failure be? And then I'd want to know more about what is the state's plans and why and what is the evidence that suggests. I'm sure Stan would want to know that too, right, Stan? Well, I, I you know, I don't know what the commissioner's um, authority is 
to take over a specific school in the district and remove that from the district or to turn it into a charter. I, I don't understand where he, where any district, any uh, commissioner has that authority. So I would be concerned, and like Shavar, I'd need to see a lot more on the plan. And frankly, one of the things that we've seen uh, under these uh, plans for taking over schools is we've seen a lot of schools closed and not necessarily great options presented for the kids who were in them or the communities that were in them. I mean, these are community institutions that are very important to these uh, communities. And in New York and Chicago, which are two of the main places where this has been um, tried, you know, they've closed over 100 public schools. And those communities where those schools existed have not always benefited from that. So I would be very cautious about giving uh, somebody in Trenton the power to take over and remove schools from total local control without the parents and the community having anything to say about it. And I'm sorry I got disconnected. I was basically going in that same direction. I mean, I think the, the, the natural question is, whoever is going to replace the school, what is going to be replaced with, and what's the evidence that it's in the best interest of kids, and how do we make sure that these plans are rooted in community sensibilities? And part of the challenge you have with takeover is not so much, in my mind, necessarily the mechanism that's being used, but, frankly, the mindset behind takeover, because the whole kind of mindset of takeover tends to be these folk can't govern themselves, these folk can't make decisions, these parents don't have the capacity to make the right judgment for kids. And that, and that sort of mentality is insidious, is corrosive, and it ultimately undermines itself because it disrespects the very folks you need to really sustain change for our schools, which is our parents and our community. So, so, so long story short, I don't want to study this thing. I don't know enough about it. I understand Tennessee has something similar to this, and, and, and I'd want to learn more about what this means for kids. Um, but these, those are the kind of criteria I would bring to bear in terms of thinking this through. So from your point of view, both of your point of view, um, actually you probably both might agree that state takeover in and of itself has improved to, to have the great academic achievement. And I think uh, I've heard the commissioner Absolutely say that not. himself, that he, not. it hasn't been that effective. But, Shabar, to your point, we're getting towards the end of our time. Uh, for schools to succeed, they need the community support. And the takeover district, in and of itself, kind of undermines that. I think so. I mean, I think I think so. And 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 um, I don't know if it necessarily has to, but I just think how it's played out, uh, particularly in recent uh, times in Newark, is, is we've seen a kind of I think a, a not a sufficient engagement with the community. Look, all the things we talked about for the last 55 minutes, I believe deeply. I think they're in the best interest of kids. It should be my job to go persuade the people of Newark, as I did when I was elected a few years ago, that these values are the right ones. Uh, we cannot be in a place where it's like, well, if a few folk believe it, we're just going to impose it on people and see what happens, because that will un undermine itself. So I think these, these ideas, the right to impose these ideas have to be earned, and in a place like the United States of America, I had always thought you earn it democratically by going to the people with your vision, with your platform, showing them why it's good for their kids, and then once you've earned that democratic right, then we, you can push the change. So, so that's kind of where I come from on this, and that doesn't necessarily mean that this uh, approach vis-a-vis -vis the individual schools can't reconcile that, but I'd want to examine it, and I'd be concerned about will this we recreate in a different uh, you know, mean some of the challenges we've already seen with district takeover. Dan, uh, maybe we'll end on a, uh, some agreement here. Um, I think you would also agree that we need the community support and that maybe the takeover hasn't Absolutely. really Absolutely. I agree uh, with everything Shavar said. I would say it, you know, in terms of, you know, at bottom, uh, public education is a public and a democratic uh, institution. It's a key civic institution. It's really important that we have common ground around public education policy. And one of my concerns is a lot of policy right now is being made behind closed doors, in private, uh, with a lot of private money involved. And we need to get this back out in, into a, a very public and transparent and difficult debate, in which people are going to disagree. But... Uh, public education and its survival is probably one of the last uh, institutions where an increasingly divided and diverse population still comes together for a, a public common purpose, and we need to protect it. Okay, Deborah, do you have any last comments? Well, I'd like to thank Sh uh, Shavar and Stan for um, 
given us your opinions on both a tenure evaluation and what's going on as far as making policies to just thrust on us, which is not very fair and whatnot. Uh, they really need to come and sit down and talk to the people, not the people that have the money, but the people who pay the taxes in the state of New Jersey that that allow them to even think that they can do this. They'll come speak to the students, the parents, the uh, advisory boards, and the school boards to find out just what it is we really need to educate the children here in New Jersey. All right, I'd like well, to thank you, gentlemen. Uh, thank I'd like you. to thank you, Stan. Thank you. Thank you, Shabar. Thank you, Deborah. Thank, thank you, Ray. This was great. Uh, I enjoyed this. We went a little bit over our hour, but that's I built in some time just in case. Uh, I know we all like to talk, uh, and I think we can all also agree that I think urban education and urban school districts are going to have a challenging 2012-2013 year. I think 2012 is going to be very challenging for districts, and I think they all have, all the issues we talked about. I think every school board member and administrator and teacher should be aware of those issues because they're going to affect them. So once again, I'd like to thank our guest uh, and uh, hope that you join us on Friday uh, for our next show, which will be a totally different thing on the Sunshine Law and Technology. Uh, okay, thank you, Nell. Bring us to the end of the show. Good night. Okay, thank you. Good night. Good night. Take care, everyone. Right. Take care, Rick. Yeah, you too.